Hey everyone, welcome to Valley Naval Gazing, the Valley Indies weekly talk show, podcast, radio program as heard on 103.5 WNHH, New Haven's community radio station. We're also heard on valleyindy.org and newhavenindependent.org. My name is Eugene Driscoll, and the Valley Indy is a two-person nonprofit online newspaper rapidly approaching our seventh year in business in Ansonia. We went live in 2009 thanks to a two-year grant that was the result that was the result of a partnership between the Knight Foundation, the Valley Community Foundation in Derby, and the online journalism project in New Haven. It was a two-year grant, but we're approaching seven years here on Main Street, and that's thanks to the support from foundations and readers. I'm blabbing about all this because the Valley Indy will be participating in the Great Give May 3rd and May 4th. If you support what we do, if you believe in our mission, if you believe in the Lower Naugatuck Valley, please make a donation to the Valley Indy during the Great Give next month. You can make a don- donation online. It's secure. You can use a credit card. It's really easy. If you donated last year during the Great Give, thank you. Please consider donating again. And please tell your friends about the Great Give and about valleyindy.org. All right, that's that. Sitting here patiently in our office at 158 Main Street in Ansonia is my co-host, Mr. Ethan Fry. Hello, Ethan. Hi, how are you? As far as I can tell, your microphone is working, so I am good. And our guest today, our very special guest today on Valley Naval Gazing, is Rick Dunn, a Derby resident and executive director of the Naugatuck Valley Council of Governments. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Eugene, Ethan. Nice to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're our second guest to do a podcast uh, from the office. This is very exciting uh, (laughs) for us. Usually we have to make a trek to New Haven, uh, but not today, uh, thanks to uh, I feel the online. Hon- I feel honored. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, good I thing. Do. It's I a do. good thing. And if you want to learn more about Rick's agency, uh, their website is nvcogct.org. That's nvcogct.org. And this is actually Rick's third appearance on uh, Valley Naval Gazing. He was on our podcast before we were even a thing on WNHH Community Radio. So he is to navel gazing like what John Goodman is to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> He's at this point you're you're practically a, a cast member. So we were just talking. Could I be before. George Carlin instead? Jo- yeah, he was the first host, yeah. right? Uh, there was that sketch about the Five Timers Club where they had what Steve Martin, Tom Hanks, uh, Al- John Goodman, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's a good crew. <laughs> so we were we were trying to decide. There's there's so much we could potentially talk about. Uh, with Rick, but we only have so much time, so we had a hard time narrowing it down. And we thought we would talk about, because it was the most read story of the last week, the Healy Ford property in Ansonia. Car dealership has been, Ethan, when did it go out? You had it in your store. Do you remember off the top uh, of 2010, your... I believe. Wow. So it's been about five, six years uh, vacant, becoming somewhat of a, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's officially blight, but it definitely was getting some graffiti. It looked a little uh, cruddy, as a you know, yeah, and like you know, every election cycle it, it's, it turned into sort of a political football in terms of hey, it's still vacant. What's going on with that? It was something uh, the current mayor David Cassetti brought to uh, sort of brought up during uh, his first reelection or his first campaign in 2013, and uh, during a, a state of the city address. Uh, I think in 2014, 
he uh, announced that there was a, a deal sort of impending there. And uh, two years ago. That yeah, was... yeah, exactly. And then I, I, you know, the next year when his state of the city address rolled around, you heard rumblings from Democrats like, well, what about Healy Ford? And they, you know, they said at the time, they're like, yeah, we're still working on it. We're still working on it. Um, and then I think, you know, this week we got that uh, press release from the uh, commercial real estate broker saying it's been sold. So, yeah, that's big news. And apparently there's a ton of interest based on our, our readership and, our, and how many people are clicking on the story on valleyindy.org. In the press release from Alan Fisher, the real estate broker, had mentioned your uh, involvement in the project. So I thought maybe you could talk to us about what exactly your organization did to and, and it's been it's going to be a, a used car dealership i believe right rick uh rick either yeah yeah, yeah yes. what it is. Road, Help me out. road ready used cars in Correct. bridgeport is uh is the buyer so what did you do how did, how, how did this uh well it, it's probably instructive to talk about what our agency does so it, back in 1996 epa put out a program a pilot program to try and invest dollars into uh, what are known as brownfield sites, to equalize the land cost, basically get the contamination out of these underutilized and abandoned sites so that private developers could have bankable deals. You know, the banks would touch sites that were contaminated. So we, we kind of set ourselves up with two programs, one to assess the problems and then one to loan money or grant money to sites to clean them up, uh, get them back to zero, flat and clean or, or just clean. Um, it coincided with changes in the law in Connecticut, which made it easier to reuse these sites. And uh, so we started way back then. We were actually the first regional pilot that EPA had in the country. Um, so we're in a position to, make, to provide that critical assistance that allows the bank to have enough comfort to move forward and make contingent commitments on acquisition, vertical development, th those other uh, typical development um, items that are funded by the private sector. So it's a, it's a great use. I mean, you know, one, I think one of the better endorsements for this program is um, Mary Loretti, who is one of my board members, um, constantly is uh, discussing his displeasure with the way government operates, but he consistently cites this program by, from EPA and from the State Department of Economic and Community Development, they have a similar program, uh, as being one of the places where government gets it right, you know, they, they make the private sector go and they, they incent uh, new development on old sites. So, um, yeah. And Healy Ford specifically, what were the, the issues well, there? Was, was there any reason it, it, it took six years to get oh this Oh God. Thing? Yeah. Um, and I've heard, I've heard that like, it's just part of the reason. I don't even remember where I heard this. I wish I could source it. And we might've had a story at some point was that you have Ford own this thing and it's not like they're local. Is that a well, yeah, th that was one of the problems. I mean, we looked at uh, the old Valley Council of Governments before we had merged into Naugatuck Valley. Uh, we looked at this site in 2010 uh, when it first w was shut down. We, we were asked to, to go in, conduct some assessment work, and define some of the problems on the site uh, for potential reuse. Subsequent to that, Ford took possession of the property. They foreclosed and took possession of the property. Um so we were kind of out of the picture for a while, but standing by, ready to provide assistance to the city. Um, we got, I, wa I want to say we were approached by Mayor Cassetti's administration in about 
two, two and a half years ago, said there was an interested buyer. Did we have resources? Of course. Was, did it end up being the... Ended up being road ready. Okay, so it has um, been, okay. So what happened, you know, it's kind of an interesting and difficult deal. It's probably the most difficult deal we've been involved in in 20 years hmm. for a number of reasons. Ford was in Michigan. It was 2010. Uh, they were foreclosing on dealerships that were going on under all over the country. I mean, they have hundreds of these sites. It's not like the Mad Men days in the car right. industry. Mm. That's right. And they and they had a very uh, weak understanding of how environmental law works. People think people tend to think that the EPA in Washington regulates the environment. It doesn't. Each state regulates the environment. Each state is the regulator. So deep in Connecticut is the regulator. That's who you have to satisfy, not EPA. But Ford went ahead and hired a, you know, a firm in Massachusetts to define the problems for all the sites they had in New England. A law firm or a- No, no, an environmental firm. Gotcha. To define the problems on the sites across New England. Well, their report didn't meet the standards of Connecticut law. And Ford couldn't understand that at the beginning. So, no, you, we have a report. This is it. This is the number. This is what we're willing to deal with on when, the on When the you deal. say it didn't meet the, the standards, like it, it mm-hmm. didn't uh, study the right things? or Every state has different standards, different levels of compliance for different types of contaminants. Okay. Um, uh, Transfer Act uh, is a Connecticut law, um, which has been uh, tweaked in, in the recent past, but not back when we started dealing with this. Um, so... My agency did two things. We assisted the buyer in getting what's called Section 17 liability relief, which kind of clears the decks for the new people that they're not entering the chain of liability. Legally, they are, but they're not going to. Nobody's going to put their suing pants on right away. The regulator is agreeing that if certain conditions are present, they're not going to pursue any future claims against the new buyer. Now, one question as as I interrupt you rudely one thing that we always hear from readers is okay if the stuff's contaminated if the dirt's contaminated Mm -hmm. we know who the owner was Mm -hmm. why doesn't that person pay for it why aren't they on the hook why aren't we (laughs) throwing them in environmental jail or something lawyers and corporate entities shells llc's you can't touch usually you can't touch the company that originated originally can uh created the contamination, even if they still exist. You know, GE is one of the exceptions to that. Um, the who's, uh, Hudson, Hudson River and Housatonic River cleanups, um, the Pittsfield Mass uh, situation for the GE plant, GE's still around. They can't hide from it. But most companies can. Um, and, mm. and That's something we hear a lot with the uh, Ansonia Copper and Brass site. Like any time I write about that, that's something. Right, but British up. Petroleum yeah, BP, exactly. has issued a, uh, executed a hold harmless for the contaminant, subsoil contamination that existed. We had the same thing with Farrell. When we redid the Farrell site in Derby uh, into the Home Depot, which was that project actually happened just as the Brownfields movement and the Brownfields pilot program was starting. It technically wasn't a pilot project, but we handled it that way. And it was addressed under Connecticut's new environmental procedures, which were much easier for business to, to reuse the site. Okay. Um, but so, before we to go, yeah, yeah go cause ahead. I, I don't go want on. to, uh, cause I, I made you go on a, on a tangent there. <laughs> so you had, uh, the, the, the situation with Ford, what kind of right. junk was in the ground? I guess that, that's something. Well, I, I, look, I'm not the scientist, so I, I, I can tell you that they were, there were, uh, the types of contaminants that both require some removal and some on, some can be uh, handled on site. 
we don't have what's called a pollutant mobility issue, which means that the contaminants on the Healy sites are moving to someone else's property or moving to the river. They're stable. They're there. Um, so well, yeah, some the, the, can... Nogatuck River is right there for right. anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about. And what's, right. What is it? It's Main Street or what's the address we're talking about? Either? Main you Street know? and Healy Drive. Right near, yeah, I, yeah, think, right I, I think Target. it's 1719 Henry Healy Drive is the, te- is the legal address of the sites. Okay. And so then uh, you have this issue where Ford uh, hires its environmental firm. They're coming right. in. They don't have the their studies to the liking of uh, Connecticut Deep. Right. But at some point, that works itself well, out. Well, somebody has to convince Ford that the buyer is going to have to hire a, a Connecticut LEP, which is a licensed environmental professional. Uh, Connecticut has a program where the regulator, Deep, doesn't actually do the plans and inspections. They license engineers, environmental engineers, to do the work on behalf of the state. It was a very, very advanced forward-thinking program when Connecticut implemented it in 1996. They copied a Michigan model, um, and it now is is more prevalent around the country. So a Connecticut LEP is hired, defines the problem under Connecticut law, defines a solution under Connecticut regulations that DEEP can live with. We get the liability relief for the buyer, um, and then, you know, the communication between the parties, Ford was difficult to deal with. In their defense, they were dealing with so many sites. They're just a massive entity. Yeah. And, and, okay. and, and it, as I said, it took some time to explain to them what they had to deal with in Connecticut. I think as they came to deal with different sites around the country, they came to realize seeing, that, okay. you know, the regulator is the state. Not, I'm amazed not that the, the buyer, the, the used car dealership from Bridgeport hung on this whole time, uh, is that unusual? I, I would think, I mean, not, I'm a reporter, so obviously I'm broke and I don't know anything mm-hmm. about business. Right. I'm in an online uh, newspaper, nonprofit. But I would have just, uh, I would have walked away at this well, point. Well, ha- ha- having formerly been a, a, a private sector uh, business person, investor, uh, who walked away for community service, um, I, yeah, I can say that that many people might have walked on this site as it became difficult. Um, I, I think this particular buyer has a desire to be in the Naugatuck Valley, to be in Ansonia. The owner, I mean, personally, he's from Shelton. Okay. Uh, that's where he grew up originally. Uh, he's running a business in Bridgeport. Um, and uh, look, I'm a big booster for Bridgeport, but the particular neighborhood he's in with his existing business just did not lend itself to, um, selling cars. And there really wasn't enough space. He's on a half an acre. His main office is on a half acre. Oh, wow. And he has three or four lots around the city where he's storing cars. Um, So he's consolidating? Okay, I didn't realize that. This is going to allow him to bring everything together on the site in Ansonia. And he's looking at definitely doubling, potentially tripling his employment level. Okay. Um, and and these are good people. They, these are these are technical people who work on cars. Mechanics make good money. So mm. They're good jobs. They're, they're not low wage jobs. So and you're listening to a Valley Naval Gazing on WNHH 103.5 in New Haven, streaming live on ValleyIndy.org and NewHavenIndependent.org. We're going to take a little break, and I'm using air quotes with the word break because we don't have any commercials to <laughs> to play for you. Thank goodness. But uh, I want to talk about the most read stories of the week on valleyindy.org, even though we've just given away the most read because we said it was the Bridgeport uh, car dealership buys the Healy Ford property. But, Ethan, you want to run through 
these uh, uh, amazing stories we published. It's been like 16 hours a day this week, people. Yeah, it's been a very newsy. I'm getting too old weeks, for this. Uh, number five, no injuries in Derby apartment fire. Uh, that was something Eugene covered. Was it over the weekend, I think? Yes, sir. Saturday. It was over the weekend. Yeah. My wife was angry. Always working. But um, uh, yeah, two cats saved from that uh, that fire. Good job, DFD. At, um, a, at a location where there had been a fatal fire in the 90s right, right there. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole other... We should uh, probably look back on that issue at some point. Uh, uh, number four, another... Or, or go ahead, fine. Uh, well... Go ahead. Gonna, no, no, that, another attaboy for the FDs. Uh, Ansonia hazmat incident under investigation. That was uh, uh, an incident in the, the Housatonic or near the Housatonic River. Or, or, okay, one of the tributaries, I think. That, yeah. Uh, well, it was. Yeah, it's like you could see the main body of the river, and there's mm-hmm. separated by like eight feet of land. It was. Uh, it was off Fourth uh, Street yes, in Ansonia. Okay. And then some kids had seen a sort of weird substance in the latex river. Latex paint. Somebody dumped latex and maybe paint. Maybe some dead fish. And well, uh, yeah, the reason I went, because that was, uh, I think we had a day off. That was Good Friday, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I don't think I was working that day. Yeah. Uh, it came over the scanner as uh, uh, wildlife, dead wildlife. Oh, okay. So I'm thinking, you know. Oh, right, 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 yeah. I'm expecting to see a like dead a grizzly bear post, or something yeah. next to the Naugatuck River, but it wasn't quite that, but... Uh, but they yeah, responded I'm quickly and put a boom in the water, and yeah. uh, Deep is uh, looking into it, speaking of Deep. Yeah. Um, number three, this was a story we only uh, uh, published, well, we're recording this on Friday to give the game away. I'm not sure I should, but whatever. But we published this. I told you that story would be well read. Thursday, and it's already number three. Shelton Mann wins HGTV Dreamhouse. Ethan wanted nothing to do with that story. Well, come on. I, I didn't know about it. Um <laughs> We My just, wife, uh, we I aggregated a, a, a HGTV, surprised a guy. Guy won a dream house, a literal church. dream house. Yeah, and, and a GMC SUV, a boat, and I think a cash prize too. So, And he had just gotten a, a kidney transplant uh, last March, I think, about a year ago. So, Yeah, he, that's uh, a pretty amazing story. As he said story. to HGTV, like, I, I thought I had won the lottery when I got the kidney, but it turns out his, his uh, lucky streak was just starting. Body part and a great investment. Mm. We had, uh, I think it was before I had my first child, my wife would enter that HGTV Dreamhouse contest like every single day. Well, right? now I'm it's going almost, to, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Actually, I, I live in Shell. The, the lightning won't strike twice. You're already uh, living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, and Sony gas station robbed. That was the uh, third sort of robbery incident robbery related incident in ansonia in a week yeah uh, that's a little scary working on that and number one bridgeport car dealership buys healy ford property as we've been uh as we've been discussing that's been a very popular story uh just goes to show um you know the the you know people are people are interested in, in sort of this uh this issue in the valley so that's good to see i guess yeah business and it's not a restaurant. Uh, you know, usually restaurant stories uh, go through the roof. Mm. But <clears throat> so we're back with uh, Rick Dunn, who's currently uh, checking his iPhone. He's got some very uh, important Naugatuck Valley Council of Governments uh, meeting, or, or not meeting, but uh, uh, email going on. But uh, so we left off. So he's consolidating. He's going to bring his uh, his used car dealership up here mm-hmm. uh, to the the valley. 
so what do you, I mean, maybe this, this isn't exactly maybe your wheelhouse because you're not uh, uh, directly involved in, in city government or, or planning uh, right. locally, but uh, when do, what are we going to see? Do you know when we're going to start to see movement on that site? Uh, oh, I, I, I think uh, work will be commencing. Um, I didn't bring the, the environmental timeline. Work will commence uh, probably within 30 days. Uh, on the site, the environmental work will will start. Uh, they will probably be doing any vertical or uh, renovations. Um, what does that mean? What's a vertical renovation? Vertical improvements, any any re- any renovations to the space that okay. need to be accomplished. The building to the buildings. Okay. Um, I don't think there's demolition involved in this um, of any of the existing structures. Is but the gas station going to stay there? And what is that? Sardo. My understanding. That? Yeah, somebody asked. Ga- a reader asked that on Facebook. Yeah, my understanding of, of the gas station is that uh, it'll be leased by. Uh, the new owner um, to an operator who will run a gas station convenience store on the site. Um, do we know if the current business I do is not. Good? I'm not privy to That's that, that discussion. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there was a, uh, but the, the the use of the site, really the highest and best use of the site, one can argue over, but for Ansonia, for, for this particular um, location, Given the environmental conditions, given the market, this is probably uh, the, the best use for the site today. Um, the, you know, there are some other contaminated sites adjacent to this site. Um, and there's some other issues in redeveloping along that side of the river, uh, along that side of uh, South Main Street toward the river. So um, we would hope to, you know, uh, certainly be ready to assist the city on any of these other sites as buyers come along. Um, but uh, on on this particular site, I think it's probably going to take somewhere in the neighborhood of six months to a year to get the deep sign-off. That does not mean that they might not be able to open and operate sooner than that. Um, there are different timelines. Uh, the environmental remediation is not necessarily... Uh, the critical path to reusing the site. Okay. So, um, but the way the way we do it is, it's kind of interesting. We, we have the taxpayers' dollars uh, that we're putting into this deal, and the deal is mostly the road ready's money. Um, there's a bank involved who provided financing to them, and there's an SBA guarantee, Small Business Administration guarantee involved, and then there's our money, which is to do the environmental remediation work. To make it a uh, uh, equalize the value of the site uh, with with the current market, so we don't actually release the money. We had a closing the same day they had the closing with Ford on a four hundred thousand dollar loan. Um, we don't charge any interest on it uh, during what we call the construction period, which will be the remediation period. Uh, but think of it like a construction mortgage. We don't hand the homeowner the check at the closing. We pay the contractors directly. We inspect the work. We make sure that the environmental compliance is done. The Because it's federal funds, Davis-Bacon wage rates must be paid. So we have to do that uh, verification during the project. And you're doing all this because if the new buyer had to do it himself, the project would not happen. It, it, would, be, it would more than likely be impossible to finance this project without our money in the deal, unless... The buyer just happened to have an extra half million dollars laying around. Mm. And because the buyer is invested in his business and in the site itself, 
these dollars have to come from somewhere else. The government recognized this back in the 90s. They knew Superfund wasn't working. They knew that these other sites that didn't qualify for Superfund could be reused. But there was we had to get over this hump of the banks not being willing to become partners in contamination, mm -hmm. which is essentially what would happen. There's our headline. The system. Partners <laughs> in contamination. That's <laughs> but, what new, that's Was that because they were worried about that chain of liability right. that we talked about? Okay. Correct. You know, they, they, they lean the property. They enter the chain of liability. Um, they wanted nothing to do with a contaminated site. So we have to provide the kind of assurance and uh, the reliability of this program, the, the dependability on the, on the funds, and our relationship, the relationship between my staff, my technical staff, the DEP, uh, deep, I'll never get used to saying deep. The yeah, deep I staff. don't like that myself. <laughs> yeah. And um, editorializing EPA staff uh, in, in some instances, depending on contaminants. Um, that relationship is critical to making it, making it happen and, and, and getting it to a point where the private sector can handle the site. So it's, it's essentially a private deal. We're just getting rid of, of the, uh, the dirty soil. Any idea how he first came upon, and this, again, probably isn't a question I should be asking you, but you're in the room, so what the <laughs> heck? Maybe we should have invited uh, Sheila O'Malley, the Ansonia Economic Development uh, guru in well, as well. But how, how do you come well, across this Well, in fairness, Sheila's the one who really kept this deal together. My next uh, question was yeah. going to be, like, who were some of the people that— Oh, no, uh, no. She, Sheila and the mayor—I mean, the, the, the Ansonia cleared the decks to make this happen. They did everything within their power to make sure this moved forward. Um, they were on me, uh, like you can't imagine, to make sure the money stayed in place. We actually, when we awarded the $400,000, we awarded two other municipal grants. We have emptied our fund. We're applying for new funds from EPA right now, but we've emptied our fund. And some of the loans that are going to come through on payback won't be, won't be in for a while. So um, we're so still there was a, there was a risk that this money could have gone elsewhere to another city. site oh yeah okay because obviously the demand is high for two weeks two weeks ago on a thursday the loan committee considered two and a half million dollars in grant applications for what was including the original 300 for road ready about six hundred and seventy five thousand dollars available okay um this was the only loan application uh, we loan money to privately held sites. We can grant money to municipally owned or nonprofit sites. So, um, and there's there are limits to how much we can loan and grant uh, under the EPA rules. So O'Malley and Cassetti over here in City Hall, which is right uh, across the street, they played yeah. a part. What were some other uh, players uh, that well, were key uh, to this thing? You know, the, the, when you're dealing with a brownfield site, there's lots of people. Um, the team that the buyer has to put together is really important. Sometimes it's the seller. Depends who's most mo motivated. Really. What's the, what's the owner? Uh, the the name again of the uh, man who runs Road Ready? Uh, Ron Saracino. Okay, sorry. He, he sorry. Owns I don't know if we've said that. Road Ready used cars. Okay. Um, and uh, I was hesitating only because I'm not sure what corporate names. Are owning the site, buying the site, you know. Right. Yeah, his name was. Now that you say it, his his name was in that press release from Alan Fisher, right. so it's all good. I mean, Alan Fisher is, uh, you know, he, he's a well-respected commercial broker who works this region. Yeah, because this um, is about his third. I mean, he no. was. Uh, I think the, he did the Farrell, the original Farrell. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the what was it, Derby Derby Cellular? Cellular yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've worked with Alan on a number, uh, or I should say my agencies work with Alan on a number of sites. Um, you know, I, I would say <laughs> from inquiry to completion, we probably have an average success rate of 20 to 30%. That's yeah, very that, interesting. Yeah, because sometimes these, they, they just they don't, don't happen. Deals don't out, happen. Which yeah. we, we've seen uh, with Farrell's, the, 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 you know, that was going to be a huge, uh, uh, you know, game changer for for downtown uh, and Sonia, but it to it's hasn't happened. That deal just yeah, but so. I, I'm not I'm not so sure that that deal has a lot to do with uh, what we do on the on the government right. Yeah, side. exactly. And I wasn't trying to apply th- yeah. apply that, but uh, but but I mean, we work on we we probably look at for every ten sites we look at, we probably do two to three. Um, is there what's what's coming up on the horizon? Are there any particular in the lower Naugatuck Valley? Because I know obviously you do yeah. all the way up to I don't know what Winstead. I mean, actually for this program, where's Winstead? <laughs> for this program, is from there. Right now, we uh, we we go from Shelton to Newtown to Southbury to Bethlehem. Newtown, they don't need anything. Yeah. Come on, yeah, Newtown, uh, Southbury. To Bethlehem, to Winchester or Winstead, depending upon your interpretation, uh, across to uh, Plymouth, uh, out to Berlin, actually, and then back uh, well to Cheshire. And uh, all right, and, so forget and, uh, all those those hazy towns. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on in the lower? I'm Thanks, thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I, my next board meeting is gonna be wonderful. Nobody sure. from uh, 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 Berlin is listening to this. But uh, w- is there anything on the horizon? Because I mean, in Ansonia and Derby, we've got some uh, properties mm-hmm. that everyone would love to see uh, redeveloped. Is there is there anything you guys are? I'll turn off the mics and then just tell me <laughs> what. Um, we, we, we have a number of sites in the lower Valley towns that could potentially use our dollars in the future. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it's no secret. We've been working on the O'Sullivan's Island site. Uh, I don't know if this is a testament to the program or, or, or criticism, but Before, let's, what, we, we identified we, identify O'Sullivan's Island. The region, when it was formed, identified O'Sullivan's Island as the top priority for uh, uh, attention in 1996. So let's, let's uh, uh, again, let's do it this week in history. We'll talk about uh, what happened uh, uh, in the lower Arctic Valley uh, a, a billion years ago. But then when we come back, let's close out on O'Sullivan's Island, because I know that is... Uh, uh, Rick just kind of like gave me a weary look <laughs> there, but yeah, that that is the uh, a topic uh, in in Derby. I think it was on the agenda of their board of aldermen meeting last night. Did you go to that? I couldn't. I, couldn't I, I was not there. No. But uh, all right, so let's go this week in history, and these are uh, taken from DerbyHistorical.org. And feel free to weigh in on this. Don't feel like you have to. Uh, uh, be quiet. Be like Gilbert talk. sitting in for the news. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Gilbert Garfield on the old Stern show. So, uh, Ethan, you want to do the first one there? So I Absolutely. stop saying, so I stop saying, uh, I'm getting caught into an uh zone. As Eugene said, as posted on derbyhistorical.org, Monday, April 1, 1907. Many April Fool's jokes. Some of the more popular ones involve putting bricks in paper bags for people to kick out of the way. All right, so Rick Dunn, you grew up in Derby. Uh, was this a thing where you would maim other people on uh, <laughs> April 1st? A, a, a brick in a bag? Well, the bag usually didn't have a brick in it, and it usually involved flame. 
Oh, oh yeah, setting it on go. fire that's and ringing the doorbell. Oldie right? but goodie. But yeah, that surprisingly violent uh, April Fool's memory there from 1907. You can also sawdust and cotton confectionery <laughs> and loaded cigars. I guess that's an exploding cigar. Yes, that would be a are also load. popular. Um, wow. I remember getting like catalogs for those types of things like mm-hmm. back when I was in middle school. Uh, <laughs> April 7th. Derby and Shelton, uh, Shelton resident Donald Wildhouse, who will be in the upcoming Olympics, is elected president of the Derby Shelton Rotary Club at the Hotel Clark. And according to the Electronic Valley, that was, he may have been, the only Derbyite to be a member of a U.S. Olympic team that's in the Derby Hall of Fame, I believe I'm trying to say. Mm. Uh, according to electronicvalley.org, he was a member of the 1924 U.S. Olympic fencing team that came in fifth place in Paris. So, and he had lived 157 Minerva Street. Oh, so he didn't live in the Hotel Clark. You yeah. Know, I, you, you know, the Hotel Clark is where, where the, yeah, the, the Willie Sutton gang hung out for, hit out for an entire summer once. Really? Oh, this yeah. is, oh, we got to look into this. Yeah. That's a podcast. I doubt right the Derby there. police knew they were there, though. <laughs> Friday. How did you know? <laughs> it, it, What's in your this background? Is, this is Derby history. And and yes, my father was a Derby policeman. There's some more uh, controversy from years past. Friday, April 8th, 1932. This is a doozy. Take a breath. Derby Dateline. The body of George Bial, better known as Rex Bell, a former boxer, is found behind Pinney Buildings at the foot of Mount Pleasant Street in the Naugatuck River in Derby. He was last seen falling into the river from the Ansonia Railroad trestle after a railroad police shot at him for allegedly stealing a small amount of coal with a group of men in the early morning hours of February 13th, probably a common occurrence in the early 30s Hmm. uh, during the Depression. The shooting was controversial because the railroad police took three hours to notify the Ansonia police. I would think that shooting a guy for stealing coal would just be controversial in of itself, but apparently not. Mm. Uh, an autopsy <laughs> conducted later in the day claims that Mr. Bial was not shot at at all, that drowning was the was not shot at all, excuse me, that drowning was the cause of death. A strange twist to the tragic story was many had come to believe Mr. Bial had swum to shore and escaped. This greatly upset his mother, who stated she knew all along that her son had drowned as he appeared to her in a vision shortly after the shooting and told her so. Whoa. And that's yeah, and that's that. There's nothing really we can add to that. Your father was a Derby police officer. Like when? When? Like what time period are we talking about? Um, late mid, late sixties through mid eighties. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So what was it like? Because I, I grew up. Uh, my father was a, a New York City police officer, and mm-hmm. then a police officer in the town where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your experience? Just and you know, we don't have to go into this but <laughs> being a kid growing up in derby where your dad's a cop yeah well my, my my father's a colorful character um and had many friends many still has many friends um people still stop me in the street uh my dad's older doesn't go out as much anymore but uh um, people still stop me in the street to tell me about a favor uh, a kindness my father extended to them uh, while he was a cop but he was probably uh, not police material going in, um, you know, he had a colorful background, um, and uh, it was an interesting life growing up. Uh, 
everybody, I couldn't get away with much because my father would always know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it didn't matter what I did. I, I, I uh, was in New Haven one night in my car at 16 years old and uh, heard about it from my father the next day um, because the New Haven cop knew him. Um, mm. And yeah. was there a, was there a, an additional sense? <laughs> because sometimes, like the stereotype you hear is that oh, the the, the son of a cop, there's all they're the, always the craziest ones. But I felt like I had to if I was uh, you know not that I was like a career criminal or anything, yeah. but you know if you're being a teenager, uh, yeah. there was always a sense of public shame that could come along with you know if you get stopped by a for speeding, let's say. No, nah, people you generally like liked my father. You know, hand- but were you were you were you ashamed of bringing shame to the family if you if you got pulled over or something? Oh like no, that, I was or, a, I, no, I was a good did, kid. I played football. Right. Okay, was, so you know, no. it, it wasn't like that. It, it's it is interesting though. This circle of people we have in the valley now. I mean, you, me, uh, Mark Garfalo, Keith McLiverty. Um, and uh, about three or four more that I can't think of. We're all sons of cops. It's it's mm. an interesting uh, um, uh, thing to share. Um, and I would think that most of us have reputations that would be contrary to that that perception that you you sort of outlined there. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. No. I mean, I mean. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I drove my car underage, and no one would ever stop me. But, I got away with stuff too, you know. She never came home. I just got decked by her father one night for that. Actually, happened to my older <laughs> brother, man. He came home late one night and he just got laid out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we we had our disagreements and and did you have a, your siblings? Are you uh, where, where are you? You have siblings. Where do you? Where are you in the mix? Oldest, youngest? I'm or? the oldest. Uh, I'm the only boy. I have two younger sisters. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. See, I was the youngest of five, so like all the beatings were done before. Like I was just raised by <laughs> wolves. But that's a whole no, other no, podcast. no. We, we we were we were. Uh, my parents were not big on corporal punishment. Um, no, no. Uh, my mother had broken several wooden spoons. Yeah, I was right, going to say yeah. my uh, the wooden spoon was, was what I remember <laughs> growing up. All right, so let's uh, as we we have like three minutes left. Let's just give a quick update. I don't know if that's possible on O'Sullivan's Island. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it's been closed for a while because there, there was a concern of uh, of additional contamination mm-hmm. in there. Rick Dunn was one of the guys who kind of said, "Let's get in there. Let's or advised the the city government to just do an accounting of what's in the ground, just in case." Is that sort of? Uh, well, look, uh, I, I, I'll give you three minutes. The three minute version of this. I mean, obviously, the city is very, very anxious to open it up as a public space, access to the waterfront, um, enjoyment of the community. The problem that's hard for everyone to wrap their mind around is that Derby holds liability for the contamination that remains in the ground. People believe that the EPA cleaned it up. They did not. They, they only did. They did what they did. They did not do the PCBs. fire training school. Well, they, they, they left still, PCBs right. in place that are beyond uh, even federal standards. So, uh, you know, and I'm not here to criticize the EPA for what they did, but the site still has orders against it or uh what are called um oh god the deep uh, term that you're ter- yeah it's a, they have uh notice a significant environmental hazard i believe there are two of them outstanding they've been outstanding since the 90s against derby which means at any time deep can enforce them um the pcbs exist at various concentrations and at various points throughout the island we've demonstrated that recently uh, most recently the problem is this the Derby taxpayer should not be on the hook for the cleanup. 
And if they go ahead and use the site, we're worried that they expose the city to additional liability without a sign-off, at least on the notice, uh, notices of significant environmental hazard. So we have a... Um, strategy, if you will, uh, uh, where we're defining the extent of the problem. Um, we have probably uh, a range that could be anywhere from a half million to five million of additional cleanup required on the site. Um, Derby taxpayers should not carry that bill. It was a fire training facility um, that was licensed by the state of Connecticut when the state of Connecticut owned O'Sullivan's Island. Um, all of the entities, the National Guard, the state police, 20-some-odd uh, towns, all hold liability for the contamination at the site. Derby's uh, fiduciary obligation, uh, the board's obligation to their taxpayers, would, if they were forced to pay these cleanup costs, would be to then turn around and sue the state of Connecticut and these other is users. Is that where this is going? Is well, that's where we don't want it to go. Yeah. Um, What's there's the status a new, of there's a new program for this that the state has on brownfields to clean up state owned or formerly state owned properties. We think this uh, 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 site qualifies for that. If the state were to step up, deep were to work with us to try and come up with a reasonable solution for remediating the site fully, um, we need EPA on this because of the PCBs. They regulate the PCBs, um, and we need their agreement on it. And there is no acceptable standard for PCBs in Connecticut. So, but then, the, but then the Department of Health and maybe I don't know how much I want to go into this because we're mm -hmm. going to be running out of time. Uh, let me just check how much. Well, we have like six minutes. I lied before. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> uh, but they had said, and this had come up at Alderman meetings. There's a report saying it's you can walk on it. Right. Don't dig. Don't let your right. kid. Don't feed your. Don't like you know. Mm -hmm. Cook but, lobster underground and then feed it to your baby. Right. I, There's a difference between environmental regulation for, by the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Health's opinion as to the relative risk of using the site. Okay. We sought that opinion. It was our idea to go get it uh, from the Department of Health. We stand by it. We believe in it. And we believe that it is generally safe to walk across this site and use it passively. Okay. So, but then the, the goal is to or ideally clean it. That has nothing to do with the legal liability the city holds for the contaminants that are in the ground. The fact you can go walk on it has nothing to do with the fact right. they're still it's still dirty dirt. That's right. Okay. And the Does the, Derby have the will to go to clean it though cuz it seems like Well, we don't think Derby should have to. We okay. you know, our our strategy is to work with the state to try and find a solution where they can fund this cleanup um so that the PCBs never migrate into the river so that they never move beyond and and you know, the, without getting into too much detail, the PCBs are located at the water's edge in many places right, yeah. where they were unable during the EPA cleanup. Uh, and I, I have to correct myself. They didn't do a cleanup. They did what's called an emergency removal, which means they didn't have to meet the standards it's for It's fascinating cleanup. Orwellian language. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. So now it, it's still closed, though. It's still technically closed because there's some. Well, that's Derby's decision. It's our strong advice to them to keep it closed. Because you still have testing going on at this point, or, or it's our strong advice to keep it closed because we would like to 
leave we want status quo to remain until we determine whether we can get in there and actually remove or fully remediate the contaminants that are left removing the liability from the taxpayers of derby and frankly removing the liability from the taxpayers of the state of connecticut and those 20 some odd towns who used it as a training facility um you know i have pictures i have photographs of the national guard burning drums and cars and uh they were practicing riot control there in the in the late 60s on the site um so the wait they were using burning barrels that was part of their riot control barrels of pcb contaminated oils you know it, look the the effort of O'Sullivan's on the fire the firefighters and the valley fire chief should not be held to blame for any of this what they had was a series of volunteer fire departments across the valley who had these huge factories who were working with new kinds of chemicals that no one knew how to put out the fires. Mm. And it started as an effort to train on these materials that were uh, being used in the factories. So, so the companies would donate the barrel of wasted oil or whatever the contaminant was, and, and they would then set it on fire and figure out how to put the fire out. I mean, we're talking late 50s, early 60s. Uh, foam was just coming into use. Uh, you know, they were using water to put out fires. And then days. even outside of what, what those activities, it was a literal dumping ground where people would. Well, it was a good stuff. faith effort to try and to try and put out those, uh, control those fires in the factories by the volunteer fire departments. I believe it's fair to say that the companies uh, delivered inordinate amounts of waste to the site. Translated, they're driving up in the middle of the night with trucks and dumping. Not even in the middle of the night, probably in the middle of the day. And dumping and it saying, other, other here's parts more stuff for you to train, train on. on here's more. Yeah, for, yeah, uh, yeah. Here's more yeah. to train on. PCBs were not illegal then. Uh, they had not been regulated yet. Um, uh, there were lots of you know we know the companies that these barrels came from. Almost all are out of business. Um, probably all are untouchable. Um, but all of the barrels that were dug out of O'Sullivan's Island, somebody took all those barrels that were delivered. They realized the firefighters were never going to be able to burn them, and they buried them in the ground. Now, who did that? I have no idea. Um, we are still conducting some legal investigations in that regard. Um, but it did. It was in the period where dredging operations were going on. Um, you know, those two points of land at O'Sullivan and Hog Island, those are dredge lines. That's mm. not natural. That's where they were dredging the river and bringing it up, and they would bring it into that lagoon. So they were creating land there. And somebody dug trenches in the dredge lines, put the barrels in. Which probably seemed like a smart idea at the time. This was or probably done in the in the seventy late seventies early eighties. Seventies like, were the a wild time. of two rivers. Right. That ju that's just uh, I've always found that. Well, it was all it was already there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't like they brought it there at that point. Mm -hmm. So we're talking another twenty years to get this thing. Right? Yeah. That sounds like. I mean, well, but but, but my point. Lot. No, I I don't think it's that. My, I'm hopeful that in this legislative session we're going to get a commitment to. Uh, oh. that site from the state-owned properties fund, or at least the ability to ap uh, to apply to the formerly state-owned properties fund for this. It's a lot of money, potentially. You know, the question is, what's the real number? And that's what we've been unable to define, even with the most recent test, because it requires some negotiation with DEEP and with EPA. And uh, they have fairly rigid standards on PCBs. Um, 
how we'd handle the PCBs. You know, most of the work, this, this one is a little more interesting with PCBs in that it's not the disposal cost. It's not the removal cost. It's the fact that it's at the edge of the water. So basically you would have to coffer dam the river Oh, okay. To so remove makes... the soil that's in the water's edge. That's where all the cost is on this, potentially. Okay. Um, but is there, and I've just told you more than I think has ever been said publicly about the conditions of the site. I'm probably in trouble with a whole lot of people right now. Well, the only thing, what I just love about the whole history of uh, Old Sullivan's Island, it's, it's sort of tortured in some ways because uh, it like, it started, it was like a guy who ran like a mm -hmm. sort of, I mean, that's, he ran like a, not a circus, but like a fair there. He had a racetrack. It was athletic kind of field. Just weird. It's just kind of a. Well, it was an island. Yeah, yeah. And um, it used to be an island. You know, you know? It, it was out Allegedly. in the river. It was, uh, you know, and then it really became initially became connected to the to the land because the city ran its landfill there that's the whole that's other a, right. yes, contamination a, history that it was a right again a, a, a legitimate dump rivers right. yeah, yeah. but then <clears throat> the two other things happened dot fully connected it when they built the route 8 bridge abutments and then the army corps of engineers dug it all up again and put in the flood control system which they uh, turned over to the city in 1973 so all of these parties have been involved in the use of this land, um, and very little of the original land remains. I mean, I, I remember as a, as a young child the river coming right up behind the buildings that fronted Main Street at the foot of Elizabeth Street, hmm. you know, before they built the flood control system. All right. And with that, we are out of time. I want to thank you, Rick, for coming by with like little or no notice essentially and <laughs> yeah, uh, and talking to us about all these issues and uh, Ethan is there anything you want to say as we wrap this up nope I'll just uh, I'll keep my mouth shut thanks Ethan <laughs> all right we will see you all next week goodbye